0: Finding solace in starlight, this week on Planetary Radio. I'm Sarah Al-Ahmed of the Planetary Society, with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. This week, Serafina Nance joins us to discuss her new book, Starstruck, a memoir of astrophysics and finding light in the dark. We'll also share a beautiful poem about exploration that will soon be on its way to Europa and let you know how you can put your name on the upcoming Europa Clipper mission to go along with it. Then we'll check in with Bruce Betts for what's up and an update on this week's Night Sky. I'd like to send a huge thanks to Matt Kaplan, our senior communications advisor. He stepped in for me last week while I was on vacation dancing under the starlight at a music festival for three days. And it's always wonderful to have him back on the show. We've got some happy space news this week. Spain has joined the Artemis Accords. That makes Spain the 25th signatory to the international agreement, which was set forth by NASA to establish best practices and norms for exploring the moon and cislunar space. 25 signatories on the Artemis Accords. That's really wonderful to hear. And continuing with the moon mission hype, China also aims to land taikonauts on the moon before 2030. Lin Zigyang, who's the deputy director of the China Manned Space Agency, announced last week that the agency is developing a whole bunch of things, including a new human-rated launch vehicle, crew spacecraft, a lunar lander, moon suit, other equipment, and a whole new launch site. I am so excited for this new age of human lunar exploration. It's going to be wonderful to see people back on the moon. And in news from the outer solar system, the James Webb Space Telescope has spotted a huge plume jetting out of Saturn's moon Enceladus. The Space Telescope imaged the plume of water vapor that spans about 9,600 kilometers. That's about 6,000 miles. Enceladus is spewing water out of its icy crust at about 300 liters or 80 gallons per second. That is just startling when you really think about it. And the JWST image of this water coming out of Enceladus is admittedly not nearly as cool as the Cassini images of the water plumes, but the fact that we can see those water plumes all the way from JWST's orbit near Earth is really impressive. And one more reason why we should definitely, definitely send a mission to Enceladus. You can learn more about these and other stories in the June 2nd edition of our weekly newsletter, The Downlink. You can read it or subscribe to have it sent to your inbox for free every Friday at planetary.org downlink. On June 1st, U.S. Poet Laureate Ada Limon presented her poem about the Europa Clipper mission at a NASA event that was held at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. A few of my Planetary Society co-workers were actually lucky enough to be there. I'm just a little jealous. (laughs) Her poem, In Praise of Mystery, a poem for Europa, will be etched on a plaque that's going to accompany the Europa Clipper spacecraft on its voyage to the Jovian system. Let's take a moment and listen to Ada's poem about one of our favorite moons. In
1: praise of mystery, a poem for Europa. Arching under the night sky, inky with black expansiveness, we point to the planets we know we pin quick wishes on stars. From Earth, we read the sky as if it is an unerring book of the universe, expert and evident. Still, there are mysteries below our sky, the whale song, the songbird singing its call in the bough of a wind-shaken tree. We are creatures of constant awe curious at beauty, at leaf and blossom, at grief and pleasure, sun and shadow. And it is not darkness that unites us, not the cold distance of space, but the offering of water. Each drop of rain, each rivulet, each pulse, each vein. Oh, second moon, we too are made of water of vast and beckoning seas, we too are made of wonders, of great and ordinary loves, of small, invisible worlds, of a need to call out through the dark.
0: This poem for Europa is part of NASA's Message in a Bottle campaign. It's going to send this plaque along with the names of people from around the world with the spacecraft when it goes to Europa. Sending names to space on spacecraft is something that the Planetary Society started doing decades ago. So we're really happy that this has become more of a common practice with spacecraft. If you'd like to send your name on the Europa Clipper mission, and we know you do, you can find the link to NASA's Message in a Bottle campaign on the website for this Planetary Radio episode at planetary.org slash radio. And this isn't just for US citizens, no matter where you live in the world, you can absolutely put your name in on the spacecraft. You and I may never get to personally travel to space, but that's not gonna stop us from sending our names and our hearts with every space mission. Europa Clipper is planned to launch in October, 2024. So make sure you get your name in soon. All right, our guest this week is Serafina Albadri Nance, the author of the newly released Starstruck. A Memoir of Astrophysics and Finding Light in the Dark. It was released on June 6th. Serafina is an astrophysicist, but she's also an analog astronaut, a science communicator, and a woman's health advocate. She got her undergraduate degree at the University of Texas at Austin, and is currently working on her PhD in astrophysics at UC Berkeley.
2: Hi Serafina. Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: It's wonderful to finally actually get to speak to you because we've had a few brief conversations on the internet. Speaking with you in person is something that I've wanted to do for a long time. So thanks for being here.
2: Right back at you. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm super excited to be here. Longtime fan of the Planetary Society.
0: I feel like our life experiences are very unique, but here we are, both of us, Arab-American astrophysicists who went to UC Berkeley. So, you know, small world.
2: <laughs> Extremely small. I feel like the sample size is, is right here in this conversation. <laughs> <It's>
0: true. <laughs> <laughs> How close are you to graduating?
2: Six months is the, is the fingers crossed timeline. Yeah, we're, it'll be December or May is the, is the plan.
0: Well, good luck. It's a big moment, you you know. And and it's funny because not only do I relate to your time at UC Berkeley, but just so much about, I mean, not just carrying Harry Potter books around as a kid, like they were a security blanket, but about (laughs) space and the way that you use it to contextualize your life. And that's really what this book is about. It's about your science journey, but more so It's about how space can be a vehicle for our mental health and our understanding of self and how we connect to other people. So how would you describe Starstruck?
2: I think you just nailed it. I mean, to me, this is a book about the sort of inevitable obstacles that come up in one's life and the way in which the night sky and my passion for the universe really provided the perspective and the impetus to be able to overcome those obstacles. There are unique experiences to me obviously in the book, but there's a universality to that notion that we all experience hardship and we all try to find something to help us endure. And for me, my love for astronomy and for the night sky was that.
0: I often think about writing a book about my life, but it it requires a willingness to be vulnerable that I'm still working on. And, (laughs) you you know, you say that writing this book was part of your healing process when dealing with all the things that you've encountered in your life, which you lay out so thoughtfully and, and so openly in this book. And, you know, we're recording this interview a few days before your book comes out to the world. So what does this moment feel like for you?
2: extreme anxiety. <laughs> you know, there's something incredibly special and precious about this moment in time in that I get to share myself so authentically and and transparently with readers. You know, I've existed a lot online and there is sort of this flattening of a person online and I think, you know, social media can be an incredibly powerful tool to connect people across the world, but ultimately you see what you want to see i am really looking forward to making that picture a little bit more three-dimensional and really bringing my full self and of course i'm terrified i think any any author going into pub week uh is probably going to be terrified um but there's something i think really exciting about it too
0: Anybody who's willing to put themselves out there like that and be so open about what it means to be human, I'm just so proud of you because oh. it's a tough thing, you know? Thank you. Starstruck's format does this kind of interesting thing where it opens each chapter with information about the universe, the formation of stars, black holes, the death of the universe, all of these interesting space factoids. And you follow it up with moments from your life. How did you make the decision about what things about space to share and how do they relate to the stories that come after?
2: The format was something that felt really important to me when I was brainstorming how I wanted to write this book. I have always felt that science is fundamentally human and when we communicate science, when we talk about science, when we do science, we are bringing our humanity to the subject. So this book was an exercise in me weaving those two together. So I sort of trace the universe's evolution in parallel with my own evolution as a human. And I tried to choose topics that relate to each chapter, but also, of course, relate to the broader evolution that takes place in the book. There are some analogs, I think, that work better than others, but overall, there's this really interesting exploration through the universe up there and the universe within oneself.
0: You kind of use space as a coping mechanism throughout your life, a tool to get through these traumatic moments by putting yourself in the context of the cosmos. But how has your understanding of space helped you process your life experiences?
2: I have... Struggled with anxiety since I was a kid. And I think I really sought out the night sky from a very young age as something that could ground me and could bring me joy and peace and curiosity and really put sort of everyday life into perspective. In some ways, it was a survival mechanism. I needed something to calm me down or or give me some sense of perspective. And space was that for me, you know, one thing that I love about the night sky is that it's, it's accessible more or less, no matter where you are in the world. I mean, all you have to do is walk outside and, and look up weather abstaining. So I think for me, that was an incredibly powerful tool it was always there. And there's something really comforting about that. And I think every single time I look up, I am sort of blown away by how small we are in the grand expanse of the universe. And there's something that really grounded me in that notion throughout my entire life.
0: How did you first fall in love with space? I mean, you were a very young kid and you talk in the book about loving to listen to radio shows about space, but what started it all?
2: I remember two things about being a little kid. And one is I would stargaze with my dad at night. We lived in suburban Austin, Texas, and the stars are really bright in Texas. We would grab a pair of binoculars and, and just look up at the moon and various constellations. And I think it was really special because it was a time for me to bond with my dad, but it was also a way for us to share something really beautiful together that started when I was, you know, four or five years old and a spark was lit in that moment. And then the other thing that I remember is listening to NPR stardate radio on the way to school when I was like in preschool and I was probably the biggest nerd in my preschool class because I would (laughs) ask my mom to go to NPR and we could listen to it in the car rides. I probably didn't understand everything that Sally Wood was saying on the radio, but I loved the music, the sort of ethereal vibe that I think was really calming. I loved thinking about Venus, and that was something I could see with my naked eye. And again, there's that accessibility factor where even a five-year-old can can get so much excitement and joy out of it.
0: Yeah, I remember feeling kind of... Uh... Not outcast, but very different from my peers as a little kid because I loved space so much and I would just be reading those books all the time. And how do you convey that to the other kids around you that haven't met the joy of space yet? That's a really difficult thing.
2: I remember when I was in high school, you know, a lot of kids were going out, going to parties, and I instead would ask my friends to come hang out with me on the nearest golf course and we could lay out and look up at the stars. (laughs) And that was just sort of, you know, that was how I I got joy and I think my closest friends did too. But there was definitely sort of a a difference between my experience and maybe the more common one.
0: (laughs) A great way to make friendships. Let's go check out the Leonids.
2: <laughs> you know what? That You you say that, but it is. It's like you find your people very quickly.
0: <laughs> Something I was thinking about kind of in the, the way that you use space to contextualize your life in this book it, is that it, it's not all one-sided. It's not just the universe is so big that my problem seems small. You also use it to make you feel close and connected with the people on earth. And I'm thinking specifically about the section where you talk about the 2011 Egyptian revolution, which impacted your family deeply as an Egyptian American. And I myself was actually in Cairo just a few months before that happened. So I had a similar experience watching it unfold on TV the way you did. I remember you saying that in that moment, you were thinking about your family and how distant they felt and how you couldn't Mm -hmm. be there with them, but that you were all on the same planet together and that made you feel closer to them. And Mm -hmm. I think that kind of duality of the way that people think about space is so interesting. And often people fall lopsidedly into the side. That's like, we're small and insignificant when there's, there's so much more to it.
2: We are so small. The universe is so big and we are, on a very precious planet and we are all connected as a human species on this planet. And there is something fundamentally beautiful about that. You know, when we talk about space exploration or when we talk about anything as like a human-wide experience, I think it's really important to remember that connection because for me, that is grounding. Understanding or thinking about the importance of, of our place here in the universe, that's where it all starts and ends is that we are all part of the same the same universe
0: there's so many moments in this book that i wish we could go over we could literally talk about it for hours but i don't want to spoiler it for all the people that are about to read it (laughs) there's so much that you had to overcome not just being a woman in science but also being an arab american and you talk in the book about the racism that you and your family faced after the september 11th terrorist attacks in the united states and I obviously had the same racist insults hurled my way after 9-11. And I just got to say, especially in the context of what you just said about all of us being here on earth, bigotry just seems so small in the scale of the universe.
2: <laughs> it does. just drive you nuts? No, it does. <laughs> and I think two things can be true. It's why are we wasting our time doing that? But on the other hand, the impacts and the harm that it causes is, are, are very real yeah, I think it's really hard to contextualize and move forward. And, and, you know, that I've spent a lot of my life trying to understand why I felt other for a lot of my life. And still to this day, you know, there are times and moments where I do feel that way. And I think trying to understand all the different threads that contribute to that feeling. And then that understanding hopefully leads to a place of I don't know peace is, is is a big word but at least a sense of acceptance of of you know this happened and I I am okay I I am myself and that is all I could ever want to be those slurs and those racist actions cause a lifelong impact
0: there's a lot of this feeling of trying to push through that intense feeling of being an outsider, not just because of your heritage, but over multiple moments in this book, people tell you that astronomy isn't for you. And unfortunately, beginning with an astronomer at your science camp as a kid, I've probably lost count of the number of times someone has said something similar to me, but I'm wondering if you have a similar experience, which is that every time someone comes my way and says, this isn't for you, I get more and more feisty, more stalwart in my conviction to try to prove them wrong. Like, did you experience? A I love thing? that.
2: You know, I think I do now to some extent, but I think as a kid, you know, I was so impressionable. Yeah. I deferred a lot to my elders. I think, you know, part of that is being a kid. Part of that is especially being a kid of of an immigrant. Your parent is sort of the you know godlike figure in your life, and you really defer to them and. I have spent a lot of my life trying to untangle what messaging is useful and and what is not, and I can choose to agree and, I don't know, accept it or not. And that is where the agency comes in. That's where you sort of reclaim that control over your actions and what you decide to do with your life. But as a kid, it's incredibly difficult. And I was just writing about this earlier today. Those those statements can create entire lives out of it. I've done quite a few interviews uh, over the last couple of weeks and there's actually been this really common thread in almost all of them in that every single Interview that I've had, the host has said, I have also been told this in my life. And for a lot of them, the host, if it's a a female host, which there have been quite a few, have said, you know, I I wanted to go into physics, I wanted to go into math, I wanted to go into, into astronomy. I was told that I wasn't cut out for this and I didn't pursue it. I changed my mind. And of course, changing your mind is okay. But there is again this sort of ubiquitous experience of women and people of color being explicitly and implicitly told that they're not cut out for something and that they don't belong, and that is impactful and it changes people's lives. For me, not only I I, I wouldn't say I got feisty about it. I wish I had at that age, but I think what what really happened is I internalized it and it became this subconscious messaging that I told myself and it impacted the way that I showed up in my physics classes and my math classes where I constantly felt like I was a fraud or you know that I I didn't belong and I think a lot of my progress in my career you know first through undergrad and then through grad school has been kind of showing myself that I am capable that I can do this and as Recently, as a couple of months ago, I had this moment where I gave a talk, and afterwards I was like, wow, I can do this. I'm good at this. I had to prove it to myself because I had the belief, I carried that belief from a very young age that I'm not I'm not good enough to do this.
0: And it's a hard thing because you you manage to power through it, and then you finally begin your degree. And I think this is something that not enough people really talk about that experience of finally getting into the astrophysics courses and suddenly feeling like I hate physics, or this isn't coming naturally to me, or I'm afraid to ask questions because I don't want to seem unintelligent or unworthy. And so many people have this experience and they imagine that everybody else around them totally has it and they know what's going on. But in reality, we're all just flopping around. Physics is hard.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Physics is hard. My very first physics class in college, I felt like an idiot. Like I did not understand anything that was going on. I would, I would study for hours into the night and I wouldn't feel like I was making any progress. And interestingly, I got better and better at physics the longer I, I took physics classes. So by the end of my, my college career, I was taking the ostensibly hardest classes that the, the university had to offer in physics. And yet I was excelling at them in a way that I did not excel in my first physics classes. And that's because I had finally built up this intuition or this, you know, understanding of, okay, this is what physics really is. And I wish someone had told me that because it's it's ultimately not about force diagrams or or you know it's 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 about how to think about problems, how to break them down, how to use the tools at your disposal to solve them. That understanding didn't come to me until I was basically done with my degrees.
0: Same, <laughs> and it, <laughs> it it broke my heart because years later I was teaching a field trip and this little girl came up to me and she goes, "I'm just bad at math."
2: And that's I think that's where it gets really sad. I had a truly great teacher who I write about in the book who ultimately said girls just aren't cut out for math. It's not unusual that Serafina is struggling in math because, you know, that's a common experience for girls. And there's this institutional patriarchy that says subliminally that women aren't cut out for these more technical fields and it impacts you know, all genders. And so you end up with kids being told from teachers, from parents like, oh, I'm just not good at math. And then the kid internalizes that. And that's really sad because oftentimes the math isn't being taught in the right ways. Not that there's a right way, but in the, in the most accessible way. I mean, everybody's learning styles are different and oftentimes it's not about the child's intelligence or capability and it's far more about the way that it's being taught yeah, that really grinds my gears.
0: <laughs> I know. Right. I, I tried to explain it to her kind of like, uh, you know, have you ever tried drawing the first time you tried to draw a picture of a flower? Did it turn out looking like a flower? No, mm-hmm. it took yeah. a lot of repetition and practice and understanding. And I hope that little girl came away with at least a little, a little bit of kindness to herself. Cause it's a, it's a hard one. You know? Yeah.
2: I, I, I love that you just said kindness to yourself. I think Anything requires you to be okay with being bad at it until you become more comfortable, until you get the tools and the skills to start to become better at it. In physics and math, it's interesting because especially in math from those earlier courses, you get a right answer or a wrong answer. You have to learn to be okay with failing. And then later on, I think you start to learn that it's, it's actually not about the answer. It's about how you get there. And that's where the fun is. That's where it gets interesting. But the path to getting there can be really uncomfortable.
0: I once got a pretty good answer on a, on a question in college, but I was still 41 orders of magnitude off on oh, my yeah. calculation because I, you know, I think I divided instead of multiplied or something. It's really easy to make mistakes. So
2: yes, be is. kind
0: to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But it can be really hard when you then get into your classes and you finally made it, you're dealing with this kind of imposter syndrome feeling. And then you're encountering this inbuilt misogyny from your your professors and your classmates as you go along. Just in case you or anybody else needs to hear it, I'm I'm so proud of you for ignoring them and doing what you love anyway. Cause it Thank can, you. can be hard to power through that.
2: Yeah, I think it's a really like lonely and isolating experience when you're one of the few women in your class and you experience the sort of outright sexism and misogyny that makes what's already very difficult, which is physics and math exponentially more difficult and uncomfortable. It made me not want to go to class. It made me not want to be around those people. And that's really, really upsetting and sad. That's a stolen moment from, from my life and I'm sure from many others.
0: Do you have any wisdoms that you would give to people who are grappling with that kind of situation right now?
2: I wish I had a perfect answer, but I don't. I think community is, is incredibly important. So I found one of the only other women in my physics class freshman year and basically asked her to be my friend, asked to study together, and there was a camaraderie that came out of that that saved me, I think to be able to survive those sort of uncomfortable classes. So I think community is, is incredibly important. And I also think, you know, of course, if there's something really wrong, report it, you know, assuming that you can do that safely. Unfortunately, people with power tend to abuse that power and finding allies and community members who can support you as you go through something is is really a lesson that I've learned. It's been really useful in my experience.
0: We'll be right back with the rest of my interview with Serafina Nance after this short break.
3: Greetings Planetary Defenders, Bill Nye here. At the Planetary Society, we work to prevent the Earth from getting hit with an asteroid or comet. Such an impact would have devastating effects, but we can keep it from happening. The Planetary Society supports near-Earth object research through our Shoemaker Neo grants. These grants provide funding for astronomers around the world to upgrade their observational facilities. Right now, there are astronomers out there finding, tracking, and characterizing potentially dangerous asteroids. Our grant winners really make a difference by providing lots of observations of the asteroid so we can figure out if it's going to hit Earth. Asteroids big enough to destroy entire cities, still go completely undetected, which is why the work that these astronomers are doing is so critical. Your support could directly prevent us from getting hit with an asteroid. Right now, your gift and support of our grant program will be matched dollar for dollar, up to $25,000. With your support working together, we can save the world.
0: Thank you. I've heard this same thing from so many of the women I've spoken to in astrophysics, either the ones that come on the show or just the people I've met in general. The message is always friendship is magic, right? Yes. Find your friends and whatever trouble you're going through, either the physics problem you can't solve or that professor that just will not give you the time of day. Those friends will power you through this. And, and that's very evident from your story. There are some people that really helped you through these times. And it was beautiful to see.
2: Thank you. Yeah, I wouldn't be here without my community, my mentors, my friends, my parents. I attribute so much of where I am today to them.
0: It's easy to see astrophysicists and other great scientists as these powerhouses that delve into the mysteries of the universe and just pull out great wisdoms that they plucked from the ether, right? But in reality, we're all humans and we're all going through these very human struggles and you and your family have been through a lot of hardships because of a a genetic predisposition to certain forms of cancer. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that journey and how it impacted your dreams to become an astrophysicist?
2: My grandmother was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and ultimately passed away from pancreatic cancer when I was in fifth grade. And I think even then, I sort of always knew that cancer was going to be something that I thought about in my family. It wasn't until my dad was diagnosed with metastatic, so stage 4 prostate cancer when I was 23, that really became this crystallized reality that I was living in. Shortly after his diagnosis, he got genetic testing and learned that he carries the BRCA mutation which increases his risk for prostate cancer, which is what he was ultimately diagnosed with and was inherited from his mom. I got genetic testing shortly afterwards and learned that I, too, carry the BRCA mutation, which increases my risk of breast cancer to 87% and my risk of ovarian cancer to about 30%. Yeah, i mean that's a really sobering thing to learn about your life and about your body and i think there's something actually really beautiful about understanding why your family is the way that it is and seeing how your lived experience is actually mirrored in the generations before you for that i'm really grateful i feel I will always feel extremely close to my dad and my grandmother because of this. But of course, it's not something that anybody wants to experience or endure. And that's why I made the decision to get a preventative double mastectomy when I was 26. And that reduced my risk of breast cancer from the original 87% to less than 5%. So that was me basically seeing this lineage before me and saying, I am going to choose not to do this and reclaim a sense of control and power over my own life in doing so. And, you know, my grandmother, I think going back to your question, she was a computer programmer when she was younger and she loved to do puzzles. And she had, she built actually tangrams, which are these sort of, I don't know, three-dimensional puzzles that you get to play with. And I remember doing those with her when I was a kid. And it's only now as an adult that I realized she was sort of training me to like to solve problems and like to do math or geometry, I guess. So that's another tie that I have to her, these sort of inherited traits, both on the DNA level, but also kind of on the psychosocial level.
0: I think it's really cool that, science has given us more tools to have this understanding and to have power over our futures. Without that genetic testing, you wouldn't have known about this potential for your future. And through that, you had the ability to do something to change it. And you know, once more, I feel like I'm just so grateful that, that science is a part of our lives these days.
2: I couldn't agree more. I mean, my dad, when I was diagnosed with BRCA, he he felt really guilty. I mean, because he knew that the gene mutation came from him, but he didn't have a choice. He he. There's no that this test didn't exist when he was my age and and having kids. But I have the choice now, so I don't write about this in the book. But something that I'm doing is genetic testing of my embryos so that I can screen out BRCA carriers to ensure that this sort of lineage ends with me and that feels like an incredible gift from science that I am able to make that decision and protect my future child and break the cycle.
0: That's such a kind thing to do and I I love that you can do that. That makes me so happy for you.
2: (laughs) Science is really cool. (laughs) I feel very very grateful for it. Something that I thought
0: was really interesting Uh, in the chapters when your father was grappling with this cancer, you continuously come back to space as a way of contextualizing your own life. But there's a moment when he actually says that he's grateful in a way that he got cancer because it helped contextualize his life and teach him what was most important. Do you feel like your experiences with cancer and with space have helped you similarly understand what's most important to you?
2: Definitely. That's one of the things that I admire most about my dad is he was faced with this life or death experience and faces it every day. I mean, he has to wake up every day with that knowledge that he is stage four and gets to choose what he does with his life you know i was was actually just talking about this with my therapist i admire that so much i mean there's something so empowering about you know it's not just the bucket list but it's about how you actively live every single moment of your life and cherish every moment you're breathing and he completely changed his entire life after his diagnosis he was this sort of businessman who really prioritized providing for his family. And he worked a lot. And after his diagnosis, he quit his job. He moved to Mexico. He started doing yoga and meditation and built this beautiful community with friends that he, I think, didn't have previously. And I think was really able to recenter himself and what life meant to him and what was important to him he's so fulfilled now i think there's something really beautiful about somebody recognizing that and having the chance to do it when i was going through my surgeries i i remember feeling so isolated from my peers because i was so young i was 26 and i remember going i write about the scene in the book where i'm going out to dinner and i'm with a bunch of other grad students and they're all talking about their dating life and, and classes. And I, I felt so, I felt like I was on another planet. I mean, it was as though I had nothing to add to that conversation because I was thinking about death. I mean, literally it was like, how, you know, I'm about to get amputated. Like, how do I deal with this? Going through that really allowed me to appreciate you know what's important in life and i'm constantly working on that every day i'm not saying i'm perfect in the least but you know something i've learned is community is incredibly important to me i just got back from a weekend with some of my best girlfriends and there was something so truly like magical and special about being able to share love and i don't know being held by the most important people in your life. And making time for that and making the mindful decision to allow that to to have room is something that I don't think I knew how to do before my diagnosis. And now I'm learning how to create space for that. With every chronic illness and every sort of diagnosis like that, the person, the individual is faced with how they're going to process it and how they are going to allow it to affect their lives. And there's no right or wrong answer. I mean, it's incredibly difficult. And in many ways, I think I'm grateful, kind of similarly to my dad. I have a wonderful partner. I have a wonderful community. I found so much meaning in the things that I do. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of seeing the silver lining in the hardship. Finding Light in the Dark, to paraphrase the title of my book. Yep.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I'm sad that you had to go through all of that in order to gain that context, but it is a special gift to be able to really understand what's important to you, especially early in life when you can shape your life around it. Being open about your experiences, particularly your decision to have a double mastectomy, which thankfully dramatically lowered your risk of breast cancer, but that was a, a hard thing to be open about on the internet. And then suddenly you kind of blew up on social media because you were so open about your experiences. What was that like? And did you have that same kind of notoriety when you were just talking about astrophysics?
2: I started on social media because I was studying for my prelim exam in grad school, and I was learning a bunch of things about the universe and I needed to say them to somebody else other than myself and i was like okay i'm gonna go on twitter and start talking about it and you know i i definitely gained an audience but i found that i have a hard time i mean speaking of you know flattening someone online versus fleshing them out into a full human being i found that it was really impossible for me to have this platform and not share these really, I mean, life-changing events that I was experiencing. And I felt like I was being disingenuous to myself if I wasn't being open. And not everybody makes that same decision and that's completely okay. But for me, the way that I wanted to show up online and the way that I wanted to build community was about being transparent and about being open. And there was science involved. I mean, this was a very, you know, for me, scientifically motivated decision as well as a, I am anxious about this and I do not want to be anxious about this anymore. So that was, of course, an element too. But what I ultimately found after I started sharing was that people responded in a way that shocked me. I did not at all anticipate the response that I got, which was overwhelmingly positive. And a lot of people were reaching out directly saying, you know, I have a family history of cancer, I'm gonna go get genetic testing, or I just got my genetic testing results and I've been scared about what to do with them, but now like this has given me the courage or the validation to sort of move forward in this way. If sharing my story truly impacts like one other person, it will all feel worth it to me. That was what that was about. I mean, that really was me trying to share in an attempt to of course like feel not alone but also to help and after that i think there was this education piece there is this you know this moment of me recognizing people are really uncomfortable talking about women's bodies people are really uncomfortable talking about breasts and you know there's a taboo around it and there shouldn't be because you're talking about health you're talking about people's agency and people's right to own their own bodies. And that felt incredibly important to me.
0: Did that experience in any way convince you that you should write this book?
2: Yeah, I actually decided I wanted to write this book on the heels of my mastectomy. I it was about a month afterwards and I was thinking about my healing process and what it meant. I was trying to just contextualize, you know, I've I've gone through this huge thing what does it mean to to be in this position, and how did I get here? And and all of a sudden, I was, you know, the research aspect came through, the science aspect came through, the way that I have endured, I think is 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 the right word, because it's not like I've surmounted obstacles; it's more of just like I've just pushed through them, and it's out of survival, and that was really interesting to me, because I think a lot of time you hear stories about people succeeding or overcoming obstacles or, or, or reaching that career moment and it's sunshine and rainbows. I mean, the way that it's depicted and ultimately that's not at all the story that I was interested in telling that felt very disingenuous to my lived experience. For me, it was really important to share the heartbreak, the pain, and the joy because both combined got me here.
0: And you've continued to push through. You're about to get your graduate degree in astrophysics. And you spent a little bit of time as an analog astronaut with high seas, right, in uh, Hawaii?
2: Yes. I did a Mars simulation for two weeks where I lived with a crew of five. I conducted research on supernova and lived as though I was on Mars, which was really cool.
0: That's so cool.
2: <laughs> we could talk
0: about that forever, but I can't keep you on this call forever. <laughs> but I do have to ask, you know, you've accomplished all of these things. What is next for the great Serafina Nance? What do you have in your future?
2: <laughs> oh, well, I'm getting married this summer, which is very exciting. Congratulations. Um, Following that story you. in the book was absolutely
0: <laughs> heartwarming, and I'm so happy for you. <laughs>
2: thank you. Thank you. No, I am very, very excited. True to the conversation we've just had, I think I spent a lot of time in my life chasing achievement and chasing sort of the, the degree or the, the award. And now I'm much more interested in being on a path that is, is fulfilling and that where I feel like I'm making an impact and where I feel like I'm growing. And I don't know what that looks like yet. I think, you know, I have a dream of one day becoming an astronaut. I would love if that happens, but it's much more about the process and the journey on the way there.
0: Well, I wish you all the luck in your journey, and I hope that just as space has bolstered me through the hard times in my life, it continues to do so for you, because I think that if more people could just see themselves in the scope of the universe and just how small and precious each of our moments are, we'd probably all be better, happier people, or at least have an easier time getting through the hardships of life.
2: I could not agree more.
0: Well, thanks for speaking with me, Serafina, and for this beautiful book.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so, so happy you enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: I think I just made a new best friend. <laughs> but you know, life can be really complicated sometimes. Seraphina's tale of resilience and perseverance is inspiring, but it's also a really great reminder that we have to be kind to ourselves and each other. So the next time you're feeling stressed out, if you can spare a moment, step outside at night. Feel the starlight on your face and dream about other worlds. Let yourself be distracted by the sheer absurdity of the fact that you and I exist on this rock around a star just hurtling through the immense and beautiful infinity of the universe. You and I are made of stardust. And in case you need to hear it today, I am so proud of you for everything that you've overcome in this life. And I'm really glad that you're here with us on planet Earth. If you'd like to cheer Serafina on as she finishes her last months before graduation, or just follow her amazing journey as she continues into the future, you can find her on Twitter at StarstrickenSF. And while we're talking about finding hope in the night sky, it's a perfect moment to turn to Bruce Betts, our chief scientist, to ask what's going to be up in the sky this week. Hello, Bruce. Hello, Sarah. I have returned from my vacation. Cool. Good to have you back.
3: Yeah, it's nice to be back. Should we start with things in the night sky this time?
0: Let's do it. It's early in the month. We probably have all kinds of stuff to look forward to.
3: It's planet stuff, really, right now, but it's really good planet stuff, especially in the evening sky, anywhere looking in the west in the evening, super bright Venus just past its highest point in the sky for this time around, but it'll continue to be... High for Venus, so easy to see. Reddish Mars is closing in on Venus; it won't get too close, but they'll get fairly close at the beginning of next month. And reddish Mars is much dimmer in the pre-dawn sky. We got stuff happening. Saturn's already up, flying high in the pre-dawn in the east, looking yellowish. And now it's getting pretty easy to see Jupiter, very bright, still kind of low in the east, getting higher and easier to see as the weeks pass. Looking ahead on June 14th, the Crescent Moon is hanging out next to bright Jupiter and making a lovely pairing over there in the pre-dawn east. Uh, That's what we got.
0: Yeah, I tell you, it was really cool because I was on vacation at a music festival that literally started at sundown and went till sun up. So I'm not usually out all night long looking up at the planets, but just being out there at the music festival with Venus shining over everyone, it was magical.
3: Did they know that they were starting after the summer camp?
0: (laughs) They did it on purpose. (laughs) Did you choose that (laughs) for astronomy reasons? For astronomy reasons. No, it's the Electric Daisy Carnival in Las Vegas. The whole thing is beautiful lighting. It would not have the same effect during the daytime.
3: No, it's good. I'm glad you had a musical um, astronomy experience.
0: You could come with me next year, Bruce. (laughs) Yeah,
3: okay, that'll happen Moving on to this week in space history 2010 Hayabusa, Japanese Hayabusa Mission returned the First samples directly from an Asteroid to Earth, not a whole lot of Sample, but enough to do some science And prove it could be done So that happened in 2010 And we'll move on to I don't know how to do random Space fact in an Electric Daisy Festival proper way, maybe a Random space fact.
0: Close.
3: <laughs> anyway, but this is nifty, keen. Every second. One just went by, multiple. The sun's core fuses about 600 million tons of hydrogen into helium. But what's really groovy in that whole E equals MC squared conversion, fusion, weirdness, is it converts 4 million tons of matter into energy every second. No, not matter anymore. Now it's energy cool
0: that's so so much and our star isn't even like that big of a star can you imagine hey, what's going on in the heart of like o-type stars don't let it hear you say that <laughs> i love you son i didn't mean it you're awesome
3: we've in a lot of trouble if we were hanging out at this distance from an o-type star so anyway thankful for so many things in the world and outside the world let us move on to what we're really thankful for which is the trivia contest I'm sure everyone is. And I asked you, what moons of planets in our solar system have average densities greater than or equal to 3 grams per cubic centimeter or equivalently 3,000 kilograms per cubic meter? How do we do?
0: Most people got this right, although some people did want to include Ganymede, but that wasn't correct. The answer is Io, our moon, and Europa. Most people did get that right, but we even had some people write into us and say, I thought Ganymede was going to be on that list as the biggest moon in the solar system, but turned out not so. Yeah, no,
3: I think it's an interesting statistics, and there's a real drop-off after those three. Most of the moons out there are icy, much more icy and less rocky. And it's also interesting people lose track of Europa. It's covered by an ice shell. We talked about it's liquid water ocean, but it's mostly rocky. And then Io is just a rebel and the moon's just cool. So <laughs> those are the, uh, the densest moons in the solar system. What do, you, what do we got? We got, uh, we got winners. We got uh, cool yeah. stuff. What do we got?
0: So our winner this week is Doug Berkey from White Pigeon, Michigan, USA. So Doug, because you got this question correct, I'm going to be sending you three random exoplanet posters from my personal collection in the office. Can going to have <laughs> fun picking those out. And along the way, we got a lot of really great comments from people, many about Ganymede, but I loved this one because this was in reference to a trivia question you asked a few weeks ago about what moon in our solar system had a crater named after Macbeth from Shakespeare. (laughs) And uh, we had a little bit of a conversation about, you know, what is the equivalent of shouting Macbeth in a theater for people... That are astronomy lovers. And someone wrote back <laughs> to trigger astronomers, all you have to do is shout, Pluto is a planet, and watch the <laughs> havoc unfold.
3: <laughs> yeah. Oh, Pluto. Alas.
0: But that was Joseph Kelly Poutre from New Jersey, USA. And this comment just kind of warmed my heart. Elizabeth Codd from Arkansas, USA wrote in to say that she's been a listener of planetary radio since she was a broke and confused undergrad nearly five years ago. And now she's equally as broke and confused as a graduate student, which I'm sure we all relate to, but she's really glad that she kept listening to the show and looking up and that it inspires her to continue her search for a career. So I super relate to that.
3: Are we we responsible for her being broke and confused? (laughs) No. (laughs) Oh, okay. So the trivia question or uh, command this week is name, All the constellations, this is the official IAU 88 constellations, all constellations named for insects and only the ones named for insects. Just to be clear with language, go to planetary.org slash radio contest.
0: And you have until Wednesday, June 14th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us your creepy crawly bug answer. (laughs) And I'm I'm actually getting pretty close to running out of the Goodnight Oppie thermal mugs, but I'm just gonna keep giving them away until I have no more left. So our winner this week will be winning another Goodnight Oppie thermal mug.
3: All right, everybody go out there, look up the night sky and think about your favorite insect.
0: Thank you and good night. We've reached the end of this week's episode of Planetary Radio, but we'll be back next week with even more space adventures. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by our star-stricken members. You can join us at planetary.org/join. Mark Hilverta and Ray Pauletta are our associate producers. Andrew Lucas is our audio editor. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. And until next week, add Astra.